Today we return to the book of Philippians in this summer sermon series on Philippians and on the tender work of joy, noticing joy even in the hardest of places, noticing joy anyway. Paul here is wrestling with what it means to live in the hardship of prison and what his hope is for the future. And so he is articulating a complicated joy. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress in faith and in joy so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Most of us, even the most famous among us human beings across the globe live su surprisingly quiet lives. And by that I mean that our innermost thoughts, our most intimate joy, and our most searing grief are shared only with a small circle of confidants. But a remarkable few make public their grief make public their joy and share the, their worst fears or their most detailed tender sorrow spoken aloud to hundreds or thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands. This month, The Atlantic published a review of actor Richard Grant's new book, A Pocket Full of Happiness, which does just that, reflect on the very public way that he mourned his wife, Joan. After her death, Grant spoke into the void that is social media, recording his experience. In reel after reel, Instagram story after Instagram story, he made public the kaleidoscope of loss as incomprehensible as it was ordinary. And Grant's following grew as his raw honesty forged connection for those going through something just as 
incomprehensible, and just as ordinary. Life after loss. Grant's book was called A Pocket Full of Happiness because shortly before his wife died, Joan used that turn of phrase to extend him a kind of lifeline. If he could open himself to noticing joy, Joan said, if he could carry around even just a small pocketful of happiness, then maybe he would find a way through after she was gone. Okay, she admits it sounds a little cheesy, something pulled from the middle of a Hallmark card. But for Grant, he found the sentiment to be true and then some. Some days he felt like he'd come completely undone, falling apart. He called it like jelly on a pavement. But he also had good days, amplified by the way the day would shimmer amid the recalibration of life that he endured after Joan's death. So thank you, Richard Grant, for making public your grief so that others might feel less alone or at least more seen in their own grief. For the Apostle Paul, whose words we still read 2,000 years after they were written, we understand that his, most inner, his innermost thoughts, his most intimate joy, and his most searing grief are also public in a way that he might never have imagined. Viral videos on TikTok would be entirely unthinkable, let alone movable type or the printing press or same-day delivery of a new copy of the Bible straight to your door with, what, his words in it? This letter comes to us from the intimacy of a prison and the privacy of a letter to some friends. But his thoughts may, made public to the people of Philippi, that small community of friends, became public in a way that was exponential. First hundreds and then thousands and then millions times millions over an incomprehensible period of centuries. More people have probably heard the words of Paul than of Richard Grant, but I want to draw a line here between Richard Grant's public confession of what grief was like for him and Paul's letter to the Philippians. Because this passage that we read today is overrun by the intimacy of the most privileged, the most confidential musings of the heart. I'm torn in two, he says. Whether by life or by death, I wonder if I will have significant courage. Will I be able to make a way through it's like he's writing himself into believing that he can and should endure the horrors of prison even as he is encouraging his friends in Philippi to find joy in the midst of their own hard times. Paul didn't have Instagram reels, but his instinct to share the raw emotion of his own inner turmoil is like Grant sharing with us the worst and best days of his grief. And even before these words of Paul made it out of prison, they would have been read 
first by a censor. It's not like he was able to send a sealed envelope out of that prison. Someone would be trying to read ahead of his listeners to ensure that Paul wasn't committing more crimes against Rome, inciting insurrection, or giving rise to rebellion. And Paul knows that. He is writing as a prisoner who knows that his words could become a spark or fodder for a fire of Roman authoritarian violence to spread through his community of mostly women and orphans and elders who are themselves already risking more than they should by coming to visit him in jail, bringing him food, sending him money, encouraging him day after day. Paul is writing in a way that is measured. He's not outlining the hardships of prison. He doesn't describe torture and hunger and chains and dark, dark nights and the screams of others. But you can hear all of that just below the surface as he works out the central question of this portion of the letter. Will he die at the hands of the Romans or will he live and be able to continue his ministry in Philippi? You hear the intimacy of his dark night of the soul at peace with the possibility of death that he might face or that he does face every day. Yet, he comes to the conclusion that he wants to be released because he knows he trusts that there is something life-changing about the mystery of faith, the spiritual presence of Jesus, the anointed one, the resurrected one. Paul says, God is the one who began a good work in you. And that good work is saving lives, sharing bread, mutual care, protection and community, lifting one another's burdens. Paul wants to get back to that kind of tangible, life-saving work. This is not the kind of 20th century, say the right religious words at the right religious time kind of salvation. This is a tangible bread and butter, shelter and safety, burden sharing, heartbeat and breath salvation. The kind of salvation that matters in this life, in this moment. It is changing the status quo, going up against the incomparable, incomprehensible injustice of the Roman Empire kind of salvation. It's the kind of salvation that's worth going to prison for. After Paul comes centuries of others who write with their hearts on their sleeves from prison. And one of them is Father Beto. He was a faith-based prisoner. And he remarks that the prisoner has no defense against his jailers. Talking about what the book of Philippians means to him, he says that the prisoner is totally vulnerable. It all depends on them. So you dialogue with death from prison. Life is limited in prison because the body is imprisoned even while the mind is free. So Paul's understanding of Jesus would really sound a lot different if he was not writing from prison. But now, the way that we understand our faith in the 21st century is tied up with Paul trying to weave this letter to his friends in Philippi just carefully enough 
where they, his friends, are comforted and lifted up and cared for by Paul's words and encouraged, but where those words don't inflame those who have imprisoned him in the first place. If Paul can thread that needle, and it seems like at some points in his life he did, then maybe there will be a strong ministry to return to in Philippi when he gets out of prison, a vibrant, literally life-saving ministry, especially for the world's most marginalized. Scholar Elsa Tamez reminds us that there is a long line, a long legacy of prison letter writers in the 20th century. And in fact, she understands a letter from prison as its own kind of literary genre. There might be romance novels and mysteries and love poetry and autobiography and vacuum cleaner instruction manuals. We all know you have one somewhere tucked away in your house. We need every kind of literary genre. And she is calling us to remember that letters from prison are a particular way of expressing your faith. So she calls us to remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote from prison as a German pastor and a member of the resistance against dictator Hitler until Bonhoeffer's execution in 1945. She calls us to remember Nelson Mandela, who wrote from prison as an activist against white colonial apartheid from 1964 until 1990. She calls us to remember Father Beto, who wrote from prison in Brazil as a Dominican friar who resisted the dictatorship in Brazil. He was in jail from 1969 to 1973. She calls us to remember Carl Gaspar, who wrote from prison in the Philippines while serving as a monk of the Order of the Redemptionists. He was resisting the dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos. She calls us to remember Eddie Hilsom, a young Jewish woman who wrote from a concentration camp in the German-occupied Netherlands. She calls us to remember Carmina Navia Velasco, who wrote in the, in, the, in the years after her 12-day kidnapping by the Colombian guerrilla force ELN. And she calls us to remember Nelia Sararo de Barragan, who wrote from prison in Colombia after paying ransom to obtain release of her husband kidnapped by a Colombian guerrilla organization. It's impossible to draw close to Paul's letters from prison without the company of these voices rising up. Here we think of Paul in that small space, 50 prisoners with only nine mattresses between them, if there even was a mattress, packed in without much air, dark, filthy, with fear and sickness and disease abounding, and yet we remember that such situations, such conditions exist even now, even today. The letter from prison gives us a window into enduring what is hard. And it is a reminder that we can write ourselves 
into a kind of joy that is possible from within our own struggles, big or small. Scholar Alfred Alzigarat writes from Uruguay, where undue numbers of prisoners wrote from prison during Uruguay's dictatorship in, in the 1970s and 80s. And he says, at first thought, nothing seems as fragile as a piece of paper. Nothing seems as fragile as a piece of paper. Nevertheless, nothing is more durable. Nothing is more durable. So we have an opportunity daily to write ourselves toward a complicated joy that happens in the midst of the hardest circumstances. Paul's central question here is, will he die at the hands of the Romans or will he live and be able to continue his work? He's trying to write himself into mustering the courage to keep at it, to hold the complicated joy, to do the hard thing morning after morning and night after night, just as we do in our hardest days and our hardest nights. Nothing seems as fragile as a piece of paper, yet nonetheless, nothing is more durable. In the American prison industrial complex, there are more people in solitary confinement than anywhere else in the world. Writing about his experience in solitary, Shaka Senghor says, I start to keep a journal, and between the thin pages of a notepad, I make sense of the person I've become. The officers have no interest in seeing me turn my life around. To most of them, I represent job security. Paul, too, is writing to make sense of the person he's become. He is working out his path, a complicated yet tender joy, from that impossible place where the people he holds most dear are worlds away and the people who hold him prisoner could care less about his survival. Poet Christian Wyman can always find a meditation uh, a metaphor. He writes that he has long been impacted by the writings of Simon Vale and her metaphor about solitary confinement means a great deal to him. Vale describes two prisoners who are in solitary confinement next to each other. Between them is a stone wall. Over a period of time, and I think we have to imagine it as a very long time, they find a way to communicate using taps and scratches. The wall is what separates them, but it is also the only means they have of communicating. The wall is what separates them, but it's also the only means they have of communicating. It is the same with us and God, Simone Weil says. Every separation is a link. Poet William Ayat says it another way in his poem, Anyone Can Sing. He writes, Anyone can sing, you just open your mouth and give shape to a sound. Anyone can sing what is harder. What is harder is to proclaim the soul, to initiate a wild and necessary deepening, 
to give the voice broad, sonorous wings of solitude, grief, and celebration, to fill the body with the echoes of voices lost long ago, to fill the void with every hurt, every harm, every hard-won joy that staves off death yet honors its coming, to sing both full and utterly empty, alone and conjoined, exiled at and home, to sing what people feel most keenly, yet never acknowledge until you sing it. Anyone can sing. Yes, anyone can sing. Maybe then, the joy Paul speaks of from prison, the joy he longs for, for his friends in Philippi to receive, isn't so complicated after all. Every separation is a link. And in such linking, we can again give voice to that wild and necessary deepening where solitude, grief, and celebration fill the body and every hard-won joy fills the void.